Purposely Podcast, speaking with social entrepreneurs and charity founders and leaders, people who are making the world a better place. Here's your host, Mark Longbottom. I've known Hannah Underwood for almost a decade. I got to meet her when she was heading up or CEO of The Key, which is a charity helping children and young people reach their full potential in Middlesbrough in the northeast of England. Um, Hannah, hugely confident for her age, that's what really struck me. She had a real passion for data and this took her on a journey to start Datakind UK. She marvelled at the fact that data was often used to solve insignificant issues or sell soda pop or you know crisps and she wanted data to solve big problems world changing problems hello good morning good morning i'm sitting in auckland in new zealand um out of out of lockdown which is fantastic you're in the northeast of england sitting in now i want to say newcastle but it could be sunderland uh well it's north northumberland actually so little little bit further north of newcastle and then in across the time <laughs> fantastic and hannah and i were just talking about the the joys of uh home parenting and nurseries being sh- uh, shut down and locked down and um hannah's kids have just gone back to nursery so um we're both very happy about that uh it's a quiet house and um Really looking forward to talking to you about your career, Hannah. Uh, and I kind of want to call it your four-purpose career. Um, te- just to give the listeners some context um, about what you're doing at the moment. Uh, and I know your role, you had a period of time away on maternity leave, but you're back at the key. So it'd be really That's good right. to find out what the key is and what you're doing there currently. Okay, yeah, no problem. Um, so the key, the key's actually been going for 28 years now. Um, and I've been there for 15 and a half. <laughs> um, and we're a charity um, whose vision is about inspiring belief in young people. And we do that by um, supporting young people to work in small groups. And they work with a trained facilitator and they plan and design, budget, pitch, um, and if successful at pitch, they get the, the money to actually do their very own youth-led projects. And these projects can be absolutely anything. That's their only rules are that it's safe and legal. Um, and the young, young people come up with all sorts of amazing ideas. And sort of whilst developing these project ideas and running them that are sort of complete, completely theirs, they're developing all sorts of really useful personal and social skills and confidence and self-belief and ultimately a growth mindset um, which helps them to go on and, and unlock their potential. Um, and so that's, that's, yeah, what I've been doing at the Key for, for 15 and a half years as, as the CEO. And I've just returned as, uh, from maternity leave. And we've actually just recruited a new CEO. So it's a sort of a new chapter for me from the beginning of October when um, he starts. I'm going to be moving into a new role called the Director of Innovation and Growth, which sounds very exciting um, and um, because we were successful last year in securing quite a lot of funding to to scale our operations across the rest of the UK and I'm going to be able to focus all my time and efforts on on that side of things which is yeah super exciting yeah and letting go to a, a new CEO is it, do you know I'm really excited about it? Loads of people are kind of like, "Whoa, that's going to be difficult." Um, but actually, I'm re- I'm really excited about it because I've been doing this, the CEO roles, as I say, for a long time, and 
are always itching to do the innovation stuff and the growth stuff and you know not you know when you've got to run the organization at the same time that ends up often going on the back burner and being a frustration um and we went through a super robust recruitment process and um all virtual as well <laughs> so none of us have actually met richard face to face um but yeah I, and i think that we had um you know through the recruitment process be really open and honest about like what was going on and and for the new ceo to think well they're not going to have me hanging in the wings um you know so well, i wouldn't do it like that uh, you know they had to be just as bought into the fact that i would be an asset and helpful for them as opposed to sat in the background twitting <laughs> yeah and so so what is going on for you guys when you... um so, well yeah so we're so i mean at the moment because um of lockdown that that you know a lot of the youth work provision across the northeast just ceased entirely almost overnight um we've got a network of about 120 five different youth and community organizations across the width and breadth of the northeast and they've all responded very differently actually so that there's been some organizations who have furloughed all of their staff um so they aren't delivering anything at the moment um others actually just kept going throughout and we've been able to pivot quite a lot of our offering to enable young people to do the key framework virtually so they're doing all of their planning, you know, using things like Zoom and Facebook Messenger um, and the panels themselves. So I sat on a panel yesterday on Zoom um, with four young people who planned their entire project without leaving their homes. Um, so it's been amazing to see how resilient some of the young people and the organisations have been and then how others have really, really struggled. Yeah. And what is there a technology challenge for some of those young people? In terms of yeah. don't have don't have access to or Wi-Fi issues or yeah absolutely um, there's yeah it, and it's something that we're really aware of so you know al although it, it's been really um, exciting you know t looking at how technology can support the work that we do we're absolutely aware of those young people who it, you know they might have a device but then they might not have access to Wi-Fi or the internet or even if they have both of those things they might not have a, a safe place or a place that they can concentrate at home to do things like that um so there's all sorts of issues that that we need to consider but what we are seeing now is that lockdown is being lifted is a resurgence of good old school detached youth work because center-based stuff can't happen you know young people aren't going into youth clubs so work's happening in parks and on the streets and park benches and that's actually where the key began that's our wow. roots mm -hmm. um so we're sort of operating at the opposite ends of the spectrum from you know pen and paper sat on a bus stop to using zoom <laughs> um yeah. to do panels and that's that they're the spaces where the youth work's happening at the moment yeah so the time in the time you've been there because i know i know from our um you know connection when i was at sir james's place and we were some proud supporters of the key but i know that you turned what was a really difficult situation i.e the you know the key was closing or potentially at risk you turned it around which is fantastic what when you think about what you're most proud of what are there is there a particular story or a couple of stories where you saw real transformation in in young people's lives because it is you know economically has always been a tough place to grow up isn't it so opportunity is limited in the northeast of england 
it is, yeah. I think that the you know the work that we do at the Key is needed in the northeast, possibly more than anywhere else in the UK. Um, you know, and there's a whole range of different sort of challenging circumstances that young people face, both sort of social ones, but also to do with the economic um, makeup of the region. So there's sort of areas of um, considerable deprivation, but there's also a lot of rural um, rural isolation. Um, so in Northumberland, where I live at the moment, you know, I'm currently looking out my window and can see pretty much just fields. <laughs> um, so there's, you know, some there's different sorts of challenges that face young people here. Um, and I think, you know, back at the journey that I've had at the key, there's been so many different sort of turning points for me and the organisation, but possibly not more so than when I first started so I was only 25 when I was offered the role of CEO of the key. And actually, when I accepted the job, I had no idea the sort of mess that the organization was in at the time. And on my second day in the job, I found that we were one and a half grand overdrawn, um, that we had about six grand's worth of unreconciled checks out there waiting for anyone to pop them into the bank at any moment, payroll yeah. the next week. <laughs> Um, and it was like, whoa, okay, this is serious. Um, it was a serious job, a serious problem. And I was very young and fresh faced and yes, full of energy and um, ambition to change the world. Um, but there were some really, truly challenging things that I faced like, all, like pretty much immediately um, when I started so at the charity. Yeah. So you're, so you're there, you know, first week. Um, financial challenges, um, probably thinking, you know, what have I taken on here? What do you, do you remember? Can you place yourself back then? What were the first few things that you did? And, and when you look back, was were they the right things? Yeah, I think that um, I was just feeling my way, obviously. I had no real experience and was just doing following my gut at this point. Um, but there was, there was uh, so the first few things I did is that one of the reasons that the, that the charity was in that situation, there hadn't been a CEO for three months. Um, so there, were, there hadn't been any sort of, um, and the governance arrangements hadn't been um, strong enough to keep an eye on what was happening with the charity. But the charity was also in a bit of a complacent situation because it had been in the receipt of a huge grant. Um, unprecedented really in its time it was a, a million pounds had been given to what was a very small organization at the time over the course of three years and there was about six months, months left of that grant but everyone thought well there's a million pounds no one has to worry about money um, but what I discovered is that there was you know so so much um, sort of I basically I felt like a bailiff or a rent collector because there were so many grants that had been offered to the organisation that hadn't been claimed or the paperwork hadn't been filled in. And so there was sort of like a whole host of sort of practical things that I needed to do to bring in money that was owed to the organisation. Mm. I also went back to the funder the, who had been, you know, provided that significant grant and said, well, there's a big problem here. And, it, and to some degree, it had partly been caused by the charity because there hadn't been the, the sort of due diligence. And, and at the time, that sort of grant, no one talked about outcomes. No one. It was all about, you know, how many young people can you get involved? How many facilitators can you train? How much money can you give out? There was no investment in processes and in infrastructure in no thought about an exit strategy. Um, it was all very well-intentioned and sort of experimental, I suppose, at the time. And I went back to that funder and said, 
there's a mess here, but I've got some ideas about how we could we could sustain the organization moving forward and change our business model. Can you help us? And they pretty much immediately said, yeah. And they gave us uh, another um, unrestricted core grant and gave us the time to develop a new model for the organization. And they also made introductions to us, um, to other grant making trusts and foundations and sorts of vouch for us and our new ideas. Um, And that was really fantastic. And I also went to another charity who was a big sort of supporter of the key at the time and asked to borrow 20 grand. (laughs) And amazingly, Mm -hmm. they said yes. And that helped me sort the payroll out. And like those really very immediate problems. So yeah, when you can't, um, when you can't meet pay payroll. um, Yeah. Scary. Scary. I mean, that's hugely innovative um, at the time from memory thinking about impact on the young people what their outcome would be if they took part in your you know activities your charity and because a lot of other providers not for profits at the time weren't thinking like that you know where when you came with your fresh perspective and you could see it so clearly where had you cut your teeth off you, if you know what I mean what had you been doing previous prior to that so the so so prior to that I mean I was re- still reasonably fresh out of uni because I was only 25 but I, I'd done a I've done a degree in combined sciences, so I've got a very sort of scientific mind. And it was the, I, it was the one non-science module that I did at uni um, in education that where I really found my passion for working with young people. So I worked in some inner city schools um, and directly with, with children and young people and I just found it fascinating and so rewarding to see how you could change the trajectory of their lives with the actually relatively small interventions um but after uni i did a postgrad um in business improvement and leadership development um and i sort of turned around another small non-profit organization that was actually all about business excellence and you know sort of models of um business improvement so uh, so i had sort of had the sort of com- a perfect combination i suppose of of trying to turn organizations around and a passion for helping young young people to um to change their lives and so yeah. the the key was just this sort of fantastic opportunity um and and be- before that i'd run I'd, I'd worked for a couple of other charities running youth leadership programs as, as well um and it, i think when i first started at the key i was doing all the sort of business improvement stuff um process improvements and and actually in the first year or so like we made so many improvements and changes to the organization but then i got really stuck because because obviously a charity is there to make a difference, not a profit. And lots of those business improvements focused around, you know, be, be more efficient, be more effective. But actually, I, I realized that I had this sort of light bulb moment that unless I understood fully how we made a difference, like pursuing business excellence would be impossible. Mm. So there could have been like whole swathes of the key framework or our sort of intervention that we were delivering that didn't actually really contribute to the impact on young people. And we were sort of wasting time and resources delivering those things. And equally, there could be like, essential elements of the key framework that if you mess with those, then you, you know, compromise or change them in any way, you could have a really detrimental effect on the impact that you're having on young people. Mm. So I, and I, and I started to, to realize then, you know, on, on, unless, I found a way to understand and improve our impact. Like we would, we would never get to a, a place of 
um, you know, our vet business excellence, I, I suppose. Yeah, um, and that's yeah, when on... I got really geeky about the, da- the data side of stuff. <laughs> yeah, on that. So um, I want to touch on that in a minute. But just before we head off on the key, could, is there an example of a, a young person that you've, you saw through, go through, you know, the charity that you help kind of form, create? Is there, is there a, a couple of stories where you're like, wow, that it was all worth it for me? Yeah, I mean, there's 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 so many, um, but there are all, obviously there are ones that that stand out for me over the period of time. There was one group in particular that were called uh, Land on Our Left, and these were three young lads from a um, a rural coastal village um, in Northumberland called um, Newbiggin on Sea, and they decided that they wanted to become the youngest people to circumnavigate the UK in canoes, um, kayaks, sorry, they would have slapped my hand for that, kayaks. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, actually the first people to ever do it anti-clockwise, and that's why they were called with Land on Our Left. Um, and, these, and they had this ambition like right from the beginning, and it was, it was phenomenal. And they, the, the, the backgrounds of these young lads is, and I think that, you know, towards the end of the, the process and our, our time with them, they you know, had said that they, they and their parents thought that, you know, they would end up on the wrong side of the law. They would, um, yeah, they weren't going in the right direction and this like, mm. really turned things around for them. And they ran, um, cause they can complete the key framework up to four times and each time they can access bigger sums of money and the projects get bigger and more complicated as they develop their skills. So they, the big ambition was always this circumnavigation of the UK, but they needed to do lots of stuff um, to build up to that and they needed to raise lots of awareness and funding. And they organised um, like a, a pie and pea supper at the local pub. They did a sort of the equivalent of a three peaks challenge in their vil- village where they hired like um, climbing walls and they got everyone in the village to climb up and down these walls until between them they'd done like the equivalent of the three the three peaks. And Brilliant. then they did what's called the coast to coast, which is cycling from one side of the UK to the other. Um, and again, they had other members of their community with them. And I always remember this story they told me where there was a, a guy who was with them who was who was older. And one of the, so it, this was like one of the big challenges that they had to overcome because as they were cycling, his false teeth fell out and he rode over them. <laughs> so hmm. his false teeth were crushed and that meant that then he couldn't eat like solid food for the rest of the trip. So then they had to like spend all their time trying to find like sloppy, nutritious food that this guy could eat Excellent. On, the, on the rest of their trip. Um, and these three lads now, like they've gone on, one of them is, um, gone on to be a nurse. Another one's actually become really quite sort of famous in the world of kayaking because they did, they, you know, they completed their challenge. It was amazing. All the like local coverage from the region, everyone was sort of behind them and waiting on the beach when they, when they came back. Um, and yeah, they've just made real successes of their lives. And I feel like we've had a big part to play in that. Brilliant. Cause I think we can all look back on our lives and, and a mo- there's a moment or a person or a, you know, an initiative which was transformative and that just when you might have been heading in the wrong direction or losing confidence, you get a helping hand and must be, is that seeing that regularly driven you massively, being able to be those people to help, to do the helping hand? Yeah, definitely. You know, if ever you're feeling exhausted or, 
frustrated. Um, I mean, I, you know, we have the benefit of the key that we have these, the, what we call the panels, which is where the young people essentially pitch their ideas and demonstrate the learning that's happened whilst they've been planning their projects. And then as the panel member, you get to, to decide, well, do they, do they get the money to do their project or, or not? And those panels are just incredible experiences. And, um, you know, we, we probably have, I don't know, on average, maybe three or 400 of them a year. And so there's never one that's that far away. So if you're feeling you need a little bit of a boost, you book yourself on a panel and, and you're like, right, yeah, I know exactly what I'm doing this for. And I'm re-energised and I'm ready to go. <laughs> Head to one of those. Because I often think, so these young people who are really struggling to even get out of bed or off the sofa and, that, you know, they're sort of at the bottom of the curve. And then you've to, to work with them at the point where it's, you know, um, going to make a difference. How do, you, how do you get them off the sofa, motivated and then active? What's, do you guys get involved in that bit? Well, so so the the way that we deliver it, so we sort of are guardians of the the framework, as it were, and we train um, youth workers and volunteers of other youth and community organisations in how to use our framework, and then we ma- we manage the process um, and support them through that um, back at HQ, as, as it were. And so we've got about so about one hundred and twenty of these organisations across the northeast, and they like range massively from. You know, it could be the big, big national charities like Princess Trust or Bernardo's or this, um, mostly it's um, informal settings. So we do have some schools um, or education providers, but it tends to be more sort of stuff that's out there happening in the community. We've got sports clubs, um, alternative education providers, um, Mrs. Miggins in the church hall who runs a youth club on a Thursday night. You know, so a, a, a massive range. And so and we sort of train and support those individuals to reach out to their own people. And that's how we sort of get into all these sort of nooks and crannies, different parts of the northeast. And it's that relationship that those young people have with that facilitator, that trained individual. That's really important. Um, And um, if, you know, they often those facilitators will use our framework in sometimes as the engagement tool. So when I was talking about detached youth before um so if you've got a a detached youth worker going out there and approaching a group of young people on the street for example and they're like oh we're bored there's nothing to do and they're like well okay well if you had a couple hundred quid what would you do they're like oh well we've never been to Walton Towers before or we've never done this or that and say okay well why don't you just plan it design it I'll help you and we'll get you the money you can do it and suddenly they're they're hooked in um because it's their idea and they've Mm. got ownership over it and they haven't got to prove them They've only got to prove themselves to themselves. Eating against anyone else, they just need mm. to show how they can dem- how they've developed their skills and confidence through the planning, and they'll get the money to, to do their projects. So, because I kind of think of it as you're, you're kind of peddling purpose, aren't you? So you're, you know, all of us need a purpose in life, and if you are not engaged in education, employment, or training. Um, and you haven't got a purpose and then, you know, quite quickly stuff, bad stuff happens. Yeah. Mm. And what, just in terms of um, wrapping up the key a bit and we'll move on to the the data geek world. Uh, (laughs) So size of, um, size of the charity, annual income, how's it been hit by COVID? So number of employees. 
Yeah, so we've got nine members of staff. We turn over about half a million a year. Um, and we work with around sort of two to two and a half thousand young people each year through that network of members. Um, we've actually, um, like financially, we've actually managed to to cope through the COVID uh, uh, period really well. Um, one of, I think, pre-COVID, one of the areas that we felt was a weakness of the organisation is that we had become too reliant upon grants from trusts and foundations. Um, like the percentage of our income from that source was too high. Um, and we were trying to find and build up other different, um, more sustainable income streams for the charity. But actually when COVID-19 hit, that that became our saving grace. And we've seen other sort of charities who we've envied for their, you know, trading income streams, their community cafes and other things that they've been doing and, and you know, big track record of community fundraising because it was those income streams that got hardest hit. And in fact, for us, some of our, we'd, we'd because we've got this plan to scale, we'd actually secured a number of significant large multi-year grants just prior to covid um, and uh, those funders in particular have been so helpful and flexible. And in some cases, they've said, oh, here, have a bit more because <laughs> um, we know it's going to be difficult. Um, so we're, we're going to be fine um, as we come through this process. But it's it's the, the biggest challenge for us is how the sustainability or the viability of the organisations in our network, um, because we're only as strong as size of our network um and we're already seeing some of those you know come into real difficulty um yeah, yeah and that's going to be the challenge okay so in my in my um notes i i had down and, and my research that i did 2013 you launched the day i call it for the data for good movement in the uk so I, this is um going you're utilizing all your innovation you were frustrated by data sourcing and analysis, if you yeah. like, and to yeah. you know, delivering marginal gains to people's lives. And by that, I mean, not on, not on a sort of for purpose or charity world, but just marginal gains to how, you know, we're more comfortable. We can don't have to turn the lights on. A machine does it or, you know, like research and what it offers our lives, marginal gains. Now, um, that that kind of drove you to get involved in using data for good. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, and uh, I suppose there was, there was a couple of things that drew me to it, that especially because, you know, I sort of saw this world of data science emerging and thinking how incredible that could be if it was a, uh, properly um, delivered within the social sector. And, the you know, just, you know, knowing the amount of changes and improvements we made to the key in a relatively short period of time, if we had got really solid data sets and understanding of our data like we could have made so much more progress um but also it was it was just driven by the frustrations as as we were making progress within the key so you know we decided actually we need to start to understand our impact at that i think it was in 2008 we developed a data strategy and some principles behind how we wanted to collect data and for what reason and we were in a really good position because none, no funders were asking us questions about outcomes because it just that wasn't part of the dialogue at that point. And so we we could collect information with the with the primary purpose of understanding our impact and improving it. And we were under no pressure to prove anything. And I think that meant that we were able to be really open 
and honest and upfront with ourselves about trying to find failure in our systems and in, in our interventions and celebrating when we found the failure because it meant that we could eliminate it and stop spending money mm. on it. Um, and we'd, you know, we'd, we'd made a big investment in a, developing a new database and we were quite happy with the kind of information we were collecting. But then just having reports, it just it, like the further we got on, like we really craved analysis and really wanted to be able to ask more questions of our data. Because the more questions you ask, the more you get, <laughs> the more mm. questions appear. Um, and we just didn't have access to the sorts of brains that could do that sort of analytical work um, yeah. in the organization. And yeah, and that's how I sort of got, in, got involved with it all. Um, so, and, yeah, because I see it as a, as a natural leaning for you. You know, you have a personal interest in it um, and you studied, you, um, at uni and you did some research roles just out of uni um, and also I think with the key you had one of those causes which actually was a lot around soft skills and so to quantify the soft skill impact on those young people it needed to ask different kind of questions which you know a lot of charities uh, weren't asking at the time and and like you say funders weren't weren't banging your door down on this as well so it kind of bought you the time to 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 get all your ducks lined up didn't it um yeah, which is fantastic absolutely. yeah and you you know i've seen you um at the forefront of this movement in the uk and you, and you've really helped other organizations uh, I, I bet that was enjoyable really enjoyable and i think the and it's you know it's still quite a fresh movement there's still a huge amount of work to be done at the data maturity of the sector as a whole is very it, it, there's a lot of room for improvement and, and 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 quite a lot of that is about um winning over the hearts and the minds of the leadership of social sector organizations to help them understand what the power and the potential of data is for their organizations and and i think that where one thing that i've really enjoyed being able to do is to give real life examples of how you can do that in a really small charity like you don't need to be a huge juggernaut of a charity and um you know and have access to all these resources to be able to do this and in, and in fact it's it's in, in many ways it's easier to do when you're small because you can in, you can in, introduce changes based on insights and information that you're uncovering really quite quickly and easily um mm. whereas some of the larger organizations you know to turn around you know even just changing a few fields in what they collect can be quite a big mission um but for us it, we, we... yeah because the commercial world has been using data for years right and it and really winning off the back of it hasn't it so it makes so much sense that the you know for purpose not-for-profit world does the same i mean you know at the end of the day you're you're kind of if you're working with young people on a project you know um the data around you know the process, the impact of that is is hugely vital, just as as if as if you were selling something else. Um, what just describe what the data like that data movement that you kind of helped kick off because you've got a link to an international movement as well, haven't you? Just talk about it and what it looks yeah. like at the moment. Um, so the so the data for good ecosystem, I suppose, one of a better way of describing it, is still quite new and developing, but there are a number of organisations now delivering different kinds of support and services to the social sector. 
the organization in particular that I'm connected with is called Datakind. Um, and Datakind is, was founded by um, a guy called Jake Porway in the US. Um, he, he was an, um, a data analytics board for the New York Times, I think, originally. And, um, and, it was, and it was originally called Data Without Borders. So it's sort of like following the uh, Doctors Without Borders sort of mo model. Um, and, and there was an organization called EMEA who uh, are, they do all sort of the data analytics around loyalty data for like nectar cards and things like that and they had brought these americans over to the uk to deliver one of their programs which was called the data dive and that was the um the, my first sort of like introduction to it um we called it like the now call it the north data dive because it was before data kind uk as a charity separate charity was created of which i'm um a, a trustee and basically it was like a weekend hackathon and there was myself and two other charities one oxfam most people have heard of oxfam and the other was a sort of a multi-million pound national charity called place to be and then my little charity the key and we each sort of pitched uh problems uh statements and the kind of data that we had to a room of about 150 volunteer data scientists and analysts and coders and data visualization experts and um and we sort of recruited a team each and they worked on crunching our data and provide developing tools for us and generating insights over the course of the weekend um and so i was like completely bought in from that point onwards and there was a few other members like volunteers at that event who were like this is incredible like we have to do more of this and they over time persuaded jake and his team in the u.s to let them set up a, a chapter um in the uk which is data kind which is now data kind uk mm. um and we've sort of gone on from strength to strength it's still a small charity there's only four members of staff but we've got well over two thousand volunteers now and we've worked with about 80 charities um and doing sort of different the data dive is one thing that we do but we do other things sort of depending on where the charity is in that sort of data journey we've got different things that we can offer them depending on uh how ready they are um but it's still very london centric and my mission now is setting up a data kind community in the northeast yeah yeah absolutely and i think it's really well timed because it's about using limited resources to do more have have more impact isn't it so you know data if it drives more efficient use of those resources fantastic and and having you guys you know re researching that driving that forwards superb i mean i i'm just trying to visit a whole lot of laptops in a room in london <laughs> and, yeah. um, and a lot of must pizza be and red bull <laughs> a lot of pizza but yeah love it absolutely um so you know looking at your career you've you know it's all being focused on you know a, a for purpose not for profit doing good um is is that is that what drives you is that you know the kind of thing that you get out of bed for in the morning it's it is it's the it's amazing how many people i speak to that time doing they're like oh that must be great to have a job with purpose and it is um you know that that's where the main reward is um no one that works in our sector for the pay packet <laughs> um but yeah i mean and i'm you know and i'm lucky that i've found a passion for young people and the data stuff and i've been able to sort of 
further my passions and interests um, for both of those things in, in the social sector. So I do feel very fortunate. Because you very bravely, and, I, and I've watched it and you were superb, but you did a TEDx um, presentation, didn't you? I did. On, on this very thing. Yes. Tell us about that. That was really, really nerve wracking. I'd also had a three month old baby at the time and was still on maternity leave um, and uh, was still feeding him actually at the time and had to take him with me to the conference. <laughs> so, I love it. Uh, so that added an extra dimension of nerves to the whole thing. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that I was wondered about them. You only get one chance at it, right? So yeah. it's a live audience, it's recorded. It was terrifying. I must admit, yes. um, and it was a, it was at a fantastic venue here called Sage Gateshead, and it was in the the Hall One, which is where like Northern Sinfonia play, and <laughs> there was I think three and a half thousand people in the audience, um, and you basically had fifteen minutes and no notes, uh, um, but I, it was it was an amazing opportunity, and and actually on the back of that, because I sort of left that with a bit of a provocation because it was held in the northeast to say you know this data for good stuff we need this in the northeast and and I've just been overwhelmed with the amount of people still now contacting me saying what can I do how can I get involved um you know we'd like to sponsor things we you know I've got staff who want to volunteer I want to volunteer and it's been it's just been phenomenal and so it really feels like we're getting a bit of a head of steam around it now and that something is going to happen what, what struck me because I've we've you and I have kind of known each other for a long time, and I remember you know I've seen you present in front of of people in quite intimidating scenarios as well, um, and you you know you took over the key when you're only 25. Like where where do you think your confidence comes from? Um, where do you think your drive comes from? Um, that that real inner drive, you know, the real like I'm going to overcome my fears because I think. What, this is looking looking at you in those scenarios. You can kind of, I've kind of can tell that you're not completely comfortable, but equally, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I I see this override. You just have this Hannah Underwood. I'm inspired. I'm going to kick on. I'm going to feel the fear and do it anyway. That's what I've really. Would that be fair? Yeah, definitely. Like I definitely go into those situations, and I'm not comfortable. <laughs> But I kind of like, it's a bit weird. I kind of like to, I like to push myself and I like to see how far I can go and what I can, um, what I can achieve, even though I know it makes me feel really uncomfortable and I like to sort of pile the pressure on. So like I was giving, I was doing a webinar just last week for the Chartered Institute of IT <laughs> and, uh, and like three days before I was like on LinkedIn going, yep, anyone want to join? I thought I'll just apply a bit more pressure to myself <laughs> to make sure that I perform. Uh, um, the drive ultimately comes from the social causes that I'm trying to work towards and the, you know, seeing the difference that can be made. And that's a huge motivation. Um, but I think, I just know, I think all through my life, I've always wanted to push myself and put myself into uncomfortable situations and see how I fare. Mm. Um, and I think ultimately, no, everyone, when you're working in the social sector, people don't want you to fail. <laughs> They're sort of willing you to succeed. Even in that TED talk, I got the impression that most of the people in that room wanted me to not falter, <laughs> to yeah. do well. Mm. So, uh, yeah, so that's, that's uh, reassuring. Yeah. And do you think, um, 
you know, what your advice to other leaders in, in the similar field, social field, what would that be um, as we move to wrap up? What, you know, if a, a 25-year-old Hannah Underwood equivalent or even someone a bit older, like taking over an organisation that's in, you know, there'll be a lot of organisations that are distressed at the moment. What would your advice be to that person starting or taking over a charity? I think maybe my biggest piece of advice is, is ask for help. Um, like what that's one thing that I've managed to do throughout my whole career is surround myself by with incredible people who know more than I do um, who are willing to help I don't think I've ever asked someone for help who has said no and that's people joining my board people who you know can I shadow you can I do this can you help give me some advice on this particular piece of project um, and I like these are people who I don't even know or I might have just met stalk them a bit on LinkedIn <laughs> um, and I've just found overwhelmingly people want to help and want to support and if you put yourself in situations where you surround yourself with people who know more than you do you're only going to come out of that better off mm. yeah no um, congratulations on what has been a great career and, and I bet you're looking forward to just concentrating on innovation and um, leaving some of the business as usual day-to-day -day stuff behind yeah um, but it, I think it's test testament to you you know you, you're leaving the key on that role that ceo role in um, a really good shape so well done to you um it's been a real pleasure thanks for um joining me today at purposely podcast and um we'll look forward to connecting in the future lovely thanks very much thanks very thanks for listening to purposely podcast i hope you like what you're hearing Please subscribe and leave a review.